All right, so you ready to look at the word? Let's get going. Uh, it, we are being recorded. Great. Want to open up this for me so I don't fumble? Thank you. Uh, I admittedly, thank you, Peter, am a Christmas lover. I sometimes call myself a Christmas junkie. Uh, some of you may have lost respect already for me in saying that, but I'll give you a little bit of the history behind where that came from. As I alluded to earlier, my family in 2009, we moved to South Africa. South Africa is a nation in the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know if you know this, but in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, the seasons are flip-flopped for what we are used to here in the Northern Hemisphere, meaning that the coldest months of the year there are June and July, and Christmas is a time to go down to the coast, you're hanging out on the beach, you're having volleyball, you've got barbecue. That's what Christmas is to Australians and South Africans and the like. And so uh, while we were there, as an American, it, it, I want to judge myself with what I'm about to say. Like, it's almost embarrassing. But there was like a cavity in my life of the true American Christmas experience that we did not have. And so you could try to do Christmas in July, as some do, but it's just not the same. And then you try to do Christmas in December, and as much as it's right in terms of spiritual birth of Christ, it's not the same. I don't even know if he was actually born on December 25th, really, but that's another subject. What I'm saying is it's just you can't get that thing that the nostalgic American culture has with Christmas. Gloria's laughing at me, and I don't blame her. So, but what really was I missing, really, with this thing, with Christmas? And I missed it pretty hard, i got to be honest with you. Because, just so you get it, in July and June, you are, th it's cold outside, baby. And, and you, you, it, your American head says, oh, Christmas is coming. But it's not. It's June and July. You've got no festive nothing anytime, any soon. And so I started playing Christmas music in June and July in my car. But then in Christmas time, Christmas time, I would be playing Christmas music because it's actually Christmas, and I've got Christmas going on year-round almost, which made the Southern Hemisphere turn me into a Christmas junkie. And so uh, what was I really missing in all of that? It, it was that thing that we do so well, especially in America, of home of getting in your sweaters, getting in cozy, warm clothes, being in your house, having those, like, warm, you know, the, the, the ham and the, and the smells, but the togetherness of being with people, of your family and people that you love. That's really what I was missing around that festive thing. You just can't have that in, in the Southern Hemisphere. You're spread out in the backyard. You're laying out. You're playing volleyball. It's, it's just different. And that's what I was missing. It's kind of like the lyrics to that song. There's no place like home for the holidays. Because no matter how far away you roam, even the other side of the planet, when you pine for the sunshine of a friendly face, for the holidays, you can't beat home, sweet home. I'm quoting Christmas songs from the pulpit. Indulge me. Here's the thing, my friends. The story of God in the scripture and specifically the birth of Christ is about home 
and family. You may not get what I'm saying with this yet, but let's get in there. You ready? It's about home and family. So God, so much of his story throughout the entire Old Testament is about him having a home on the earth. In fact, most of the Old Testament scripture, when you take a step back and look at the big picture of what's going on, it is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. That God had a covenant people, he made an Ark of the Covenant, had them make an Ark of the Covenant, which was his seat. Kind of like you're sitting in a seat right now. Well, God had a seat that he wanted to presence himself on the earth, on this Ark of the Covenant. And in most of the Old Testament is the story of that ark being led uh, through the wilderness by the people of God into the final resting place, the, not final, but the resting place of the temple in, the, in Jerusalem. And, and the idea was that God would have a home in the earth amongst his people. So where God started off, as I just said, was a mobile home. You may, you may think that's even sacrilegious. Straight up, God does n- is not ashamed to be in a mobile home. So what I mean by that is because they were wandering for 40 years through the wilderness, they didn't have a temple, a, s- a, a set position. They had to do it in what was called a tent of meeting. And so they would set up the tent in each place that they would settle periodically, and there the Ark of the Covenant would be placed in the kind of inner sanctuary of this tent of meeting. And there God would meet, Moses would meet with God face to face, and he would commune with God in that place because God dwelt there. The, the uh, God dwelt with a people, by the way, who were wandering homeless people. God was also with a people who had just left the lowest social rung of slavery in the land of Egypt. This is who God wanted to be with. So my point there is God wants to make a home. Don't you think that your disqualifications in your eyes make you, don't allow yourself to think that God thinks that he doesn't want to be with you and make you his home. Because he is happy to meet with in human loneliness. God is comfortable making home with our loneliness. But then the Ark of the Covenant did pass through. In fact, it was what passed through before the people as they crossed the Jordan River from the wilderness into the promised land. It was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And eventually God would give them instructions for how to build a temple and the inner sanctuary and the holiest of holies would be the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. It was his home in the earth. And if you look at 1 Kings 8, verse 6, we find out what happened when that temple was completed and when that Ark of the Covenant was placed next to the statues of the angels, the cherubim uh, behind it, I mean in front of it, and when it was placed in its place and the curtain was drawn and everything was set in, in, in its rightful place in the temple, 1 Kings 8, verse 6 says, Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, Under the wings of the cherubim, and then in verse 10 it says, And it came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. That's a glory cloud. And so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Would you agree that this 
house concept is pretty important to God. That he wanted to make a profound moment in that place to say, this is important to me. I inhabit this place. This is what I have been building all these generations up to this moment to have a house in the earth. Now check this out. In the new covenant, we find that all of that had simply been a type and a shadow, a physical picture of what would be spiritually fulfilled in Christ. We find that Jesus was the temple of God. Jesus was the house in which God dwelled on the earth. Where am I getting this? John chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What was in the Jerusalem? The temple. What was inside of the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. Who sat upon the Ark of the Covenant? God. You follow? This is where Jesus is, in Jerusalem. And, it, and he found in the temple, just to let you know where he is, he's in the temple, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. If you drop down to verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Listen how Jesus answers. He says, it said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The idea being that the temple never really was intended in complete sense to be God's house. Jesus was to be the temple of the Lord. We find out in Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul, the apostle says, For in Christ, which means Jesus, all the fullness of the deity, God, lives in bodily form. Are you tracking? Jesus was and is the house of God, the temple of God. He dwells on the earth through Jesus, which would mean a couple things, and this is not an exhaustive list of what we could say about Jesus as a result, but I'm sure you would agree with me about this. If Jesus was the temple of God, then he had access to God, right? If Jesus was the temple of God, then he had God's presence with him. If Jesus was the temple of God, he had intimacy with God. I mean, it doesn't get a lot more intimate than somebody being inside of you, living, dwelling in you. If Jesus was the temple of God, then he had the glory of God in him and even upon him. He had the divine wisdom through the Holy Spirit in him. And he had divine communication the voice of his father that he could go to and, and listen to and be led by. You ready for the clincher? The moment you become born again, the moment you receive Jesus and place your faith in him, you receive him for who he is, you in him have become the dwelling place of God. My friends, this is the purpose of church. It is not so we can get our praise on, although we like to. 
It's not so the pastor can give us a spiritually uplifting message that will feed us for the next seven days. Although that does happen, hopefully. It is so that God builds on the earth a dwelling place in which he lives through called the church. That is it. My testimony from when I got born again, when I got saved or whatever term you want to give it, I was not in a church that taught such a thing. I didn't know what it meant. All I knew about saved and born again is that those weird Baptist people or I, don't, I just lumped all Protestants together as Baptist. I didn't even know what a Pentecostal was or a Charismatic or a Presbyterian. This is Baptist people. I was in the South. So if you're not Catholic like I was, you're Baptist. And, uh, and I didn't know. No one, I, I didn't know what saved or born again was. But a priest told me in the class that I was in at school that Jesus died so that we could know him personally. And he said, this priest said, Jesus said, seek and you will find. And he promises if you seek to know him, that you will find, if you seek him with all of your heart. And so no one had ever said anything like that. The idea that I could know God as well as I knew my closest human relationships was profound to me. And there was something about this priest that he had my attention, he had my respect and my trust. He was really kind of a cool guy. And uh, you could tell that there was something real spiritually with him. And, uh, and I took him at his word. Jesus said, seek and you will find. I want to I know Jesus. I want to know God. And so I prayed that night on my bed. And, uh, and I said, Jesus, you said, seek and you will find. And I want to know you. And I do not feel like I know you. I know about you. I know stuff about you, but I don't know you. But I want to know you. And you said that uh, if I seek, I would find. In that moment, without anyone telling me, the Holy Spirit just began to bring scriptures. I just remembered hearing from somewhere that you're supposed to repent and you're supposed to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so I just started repenting. And I just began to say, Lord, I, 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 I know I have sin. And, I, and as I'm doing it, I'm realizing I don't even know what sin is really. Like, how do I know what's sin and what isn't sin? And so I said, Lord, I just acknowledge that I am a sinner and I invite you to show me your will so that I can follow your will. And whatever is not your will, that must be sin. And whatever your will is, that's good. You track? And then I said, in Jesus, I put my life in your hands. I invite you to be my Lord. And I didn't know I was getting born again in this moment. I just knew I was having a connected moment in prayer. That night, I got born again. It wasn't for six months after that that I realized that that expression those Baptists talk about, would be, do Baptists even say born again? I don't even know. They probably do. It w- yeah, I'm sure they do. It was six months later I realized that that expression that they say, that's what happened to me. And I remember saying to one of my friends, guys, I think I got born again. And my friend Fico was like, nah, man, if you got born again, you wouldn't be drinking anymore. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you're probably right. So I went through 12 months of like hell of, of living a lifestyle that was in compromise uh, and, and yet knowing that I had given my life to Jesus. And that's a whole other story. But what I want to get at is in that moment when I prayed to receive Jesus, I somehow knew in my knower that Jesus was going to be communicating with me 
If I'm going to know him, which is the whole thing that I was praying about, he's going to be like revealing things to me, and I'm going to have to obey his, his leadership. My friends, simple Christianity. That's all I've ever known. You guys see me as like a pastor and think that I've gone to professional pastor. No, that's it. That's, that's all I've known. From day one, it's been follow Jesus, which has led me to a particular call, and hopefully he's leading you into your calling and purpose. The idea is Jesus came and dwelt inside of me by his spirit, making up his home so that he could begin to lead me and live through me. We good? I want you to ask you just to, if you can flip to these scriptures, that's awesome. If you can't, just listen to them. Do you remember what was the name of the building in Jerusalem that God dwelled in? Anybody want to call it out who's not an elder? What was the name of the building in Jerusalem? The temple. There we go. Mackie. Go Mackies. The temple was the home of God in the Old Testament. Now listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you, Christian, believer, church, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Or 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. In other words, have my home, my house in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Foundation, cornerstone, these are architectural terms. We're talking about a building. We're using imagery to refer back to the temple of the Old Testament, except we're talking now about the church. The people of God are the temple. And it says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place, a home of God through the Spirit. Are you seeing the picture? The tent of meeting gave way to the temple in Jerusalem, gave way to Jesus. And in Christ, he invites us not just to be followers of a religion. He invites us to be what he is, a son of God, a dwelling place of God on the earth. Now, we are lively stones being fitted together, Peter says. It's not that you by yourself are a dwelling place. No, we have to fit together. We have to do this thing together. We have to have our gifts and what God has given each of us connect together so that he can build in us a dwelling place. But that, make no mistake, is what God is doing in his church and in us. So let's look back at the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, at how this thing actually happened, and uncover some of the wisdom of God's plan unveiled through the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. 
it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they, which means got engaged, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. You do know that that was a significant social problem. Because <laughs> jo- Joseph was a good, righteous man, a follower of Jehovah. And his wife just got pregnant, and they're not married yet, and that does not speak loud. And, they, and you can tell all of your friends, oh, no, the Holy Spirit got her pregnant. It's probably not going to go down well. I just want to paint the picture while we're talking about the household of God of how God is not ashamed to dwell amongst things that socially are rejected by people. Because some of us may feel like, oh, who, who am I? No, God says, you are my chosen. Anyways, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall, take note of this, call his name Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, is the word similar to the name Joshua, and it means salvation. It means connected, it, it means salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that's referring to Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Are you seeing a conflict here? The, whole, the, the, the angel said to Joseph that you shall call his name Jesus, and he's also saying that this is a fulfillment of the scripture where this virgin will give birth to a son, his name shall be called Emmanuel. Well, what do we mean? Which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, and she did not know and did not know her until she had brought forth, forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to give two takeaways from all of this this morning. The first is this. Making his home in you is Jesus's nature. It's not something that he might do or kind of has on a to-do list. It is core identity of who Jesus is. You want to know Jesus's will for your life? You want to follow the plan of Jesus? This is what he does. He makes humans a dwelling place of his father. Where do I get this? We have this idea of name here. You said that you see that he was Joseph was told to call his name Jesus. And then in Isaiah 7:14, which is referenced later, it says that they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, if you look at the Hebrew word that Isaiah the prophet used 800 years before Jesus, and if you look at the Greek word that Matthew used, his name, Jesus, both those words for name, Hebrew and Greek, both have dual meanings. It can mean name, like John David or Raynell or Rodney, or it can mean name as what you're known for, your fame, your, your reputation. It has dual meaning. 
And so which is it? Is it his name, as in John David, or is it his reputation? Well, I think we can pretty easily answer that question. Verse 21 and verse 25, both of those say, call his name Jesus. And then in verse 25, Joseph called his name Jesus. And how do you know of what's his name? What's his name? Jesus. We all know his name. So clearly what Isaiah was speaking of was not his name as in what would be on his identity card. It's what he's known for. It's his reputation. It's his identity. And what is his identity? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Dwelling place. God inhabiting. When I got born again, my friends, many of you can testify this morning that Paul is not perfect. Paul is not arrived or complete. But I can testify God began to dwell in me from that night. Something is not the same. I have, remember what we said about Jesus being the temple of God and what he had as a result? Can I suggest that if these things are true, you and I being the temple of God, you and I have access to God. You and I have God's presence. You and I have intimacy with God. You and I have the glory of God that would have been found in the uh, name above all names. You and I have divine wisdom. You and I have divine communication. This is not something that Jesus thinks about doing or would like to do. This is core to his identity. It is who he is. He makes you the home of his father. Second takeaway, and then we'll have a moment to be able to respond this morning. Home, making you his home, was accomplished through reconciliation. I I just want to kind of spell that out, what we mean by that. If you want to turn there, you can look real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read verses 18 and 19. And man, is the end of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians chock full of wonder and glory. But in verse 18 and 19, Paul says this. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. Can you say reconciled? Reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation, as best I understand it, is twofold. It's reconciling two parties who otherwise had been separated for whatever reason. God was in Christ reconciling us to him. And oftentimes we think of reconciliation as what that scripture says, and it's certainly right. We are being reconciled to God in that sin was what was the barrier. Our sin could not uh, enable us to have fellowship and intimacy with the holy God. God cannot be perfect and just and righteous and allow sin into his perfect, righteous, and just kingdom. 
And because we all have sin, we cannot have access to his, to his kingdom, to his presence, to God at all. Right? We all know these things. So Jesus had to come and he had to make that right, to make the, the sin issue right. It says that he was not imputing the trespasses to them and, of course, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. But can I suggest that there is a key other element to this reconciliation? It is not that God was not able to accept us because of our sin. It is also the other party. You and me are not able to accept God because of lies believed in our hearts. And for Jesus to reconcile humanity to God, he didn't just stand on our behalf representing us to God. He's also standing on God's behalf representing the truth of who God really is to us. He is undoing the lie that began this whole sin problem in the beginning. And can we go back really quickly just to look at that problem in the beginning? Genesis chapter 3, the lie that was imparted into the heart of man that has caused us to not see God clearly, to think things about God that are other than who he is. And can we just be real for a moment? Inside of every single person in this room, there are lies about God believed. That is, the, that is the problem. It's not a problem. That is the problem. A twisted concept of who God is that was spoken from one called the serpent who's also known as the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser, and he came to accuse God to man. Those lies believed in our heart. Some of us in here, we struggle surrendering our lives to Jesus. Anybody identify with that? Do you know why that is? Because you're believing a lie? If you know who Jesus is, there is no struggle surrendering to him. You want to run the heck of anything that isn't surrendered to him. I, we got to see it for what it is. The whole fall began with lies. Not just with messing up and not performing well. The problem began with believing lies about God. And what are those lies? Genesis chapter 3. Here's where it happened. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Remember how God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you'll surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What just happened in that moment? Now, the serpent didn't say these words, but here's what he said through those words. Number one, God lies. Number two, God lies to keep you under at your expense for his benefit. Are you catching this? These are the lies, my friends, that are still lodged in the hearts, even in the church. This is how Jesus came to reconcile. Yes, represent us to God, but he wanted to represent God, the real God. Not the image that the serpent tried to present and portray. God as he really is. Thirdly, these lies would say that God cannot be trusted. 
if it's true that he lies, and if it's true that he lies to keep me down in order to benefit himself at my expense, then he cannot be trusted, which undergirding all of that is this. Please hear this. God does not really love you. That's what Jesus came to demonstrate. How could he have demonstrated it any other magnificent way than to be the only one who didn't have sin and to come and bear the punishment of all of our sin? Not imputing our trespasses, but to say, because of my righteousness, you get to go to my daddy. You get to go to my father. And my father can come to you, not because of your righteousness, but because I'm placing my righteousness upon you and saying, Dad, accept not their righteousness, but mine. Come and dwell inside of them. I hope that we're seeing a little bit more about why this Jesus was born, what his heart was. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Can you and I call him that this morning? Emmanuel, God with us, reconciliation, representing me to the Father so that I can have him, and also in the cross and in the resurrection, representing that God, not only the love of the sacrifice on the cross, but the power of the resurrection, both of which make my heart swell and say, I can trust you. You love me. You love me. You are for me. You are not against me. You are, you, you can't be any more for me. And you also reign with power that is sublime and that is transcendent of any power on this earth. You are the ultimate leader. It undoes what happened at the, in the garden at the fall, the cross and the resurrection. This morning, I want to say, we can, I, I'd like to, if we can have the communion elements, because I don't think there's any better way to respond this morning than to partake of what Jesus told us to do to remember him, to remember his death. But as we do that, I want to read this final scripture this morning of something that Jesus tells the church decades after his death and his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. He speaks through John the Apostle and gives prophetic words that became the book of Revelation. And in chapter 3, verse 20, this is what Jesus says to the church, and I want to ask you to hear these words as what Jesus says to you and me today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, as a realtor, <laughs> I've, I've done no shortage of this. Knocking meeting people in the community, wanting to have access to them. And Jesus stands at the door, knocking. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. What is Jesus wanting to do? What is his nature? What is this whole thing about? It's about dwelling place. God with us, us being with him. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That picture, where we started, I'm a Christmas junkie. But what I really want is that thing of being 
in, my, in a house with people who love me and I love them, being with my family. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's coming for, to fellowship with you. How do we do that? It is acknowledgement of the truth. It's the confession of who he really is and putting your trust in him. Trust was what was removed at the fall. We didn't trust God anymore because we believed the lie. In the gospel, we very simply believe the truth. Jesus, you love me. You have all power. I trust you. That's it. That's it. You may say, well, that's a great message, but too bad that there aren't any unbelievers in the room because that's obviously an evangelistic message. No. Do you know who Jesus was speaking to in Revelation chapter 3? The church of Laodicea. Believers like you and me. He's still standing at the door even of his own church. If you'll hear my voice and open up the door and I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I want to invite us... uh, I want to pray, and and just as I'm praying and as you feel prepared just to come and receive, go come and get the elements.